0: Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we talk to authors of music books, bios, history, and criticism. I'm your host, CJ. Today we're welcoming back author Greg Renoff, who we interviewed about his excellent book Van Halen Rising. Today we'll be speaking with him about his brand new book, Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music. Welcome back, Greg.
1: Hey, thanks for having
0: me. Congratulations on your new book. It's a great read, very enjoyable, and covers music that almost everybody has a connection to. But I want to start on the credit of the cover of your new book and then move quickly to the very end of your book, okay? Sure. I know that's a weird one, but stay with me here. So the full title is followed by the credit Ted Templeman as told to Greg Renoff. And then your afterword was really interesting in detailing this process. Can you explain how this worked?
1: Yeah. When I wrote Van Halen Rising, Basically, the tail end of the research phase, I was able to find a way to get in contact with Ted Templeman. And Ted doesn't have a website, and he's a pretty private person, and so it's not easy to find a way to reach him. But I was able to reach Ted, and I did an interview for the book, and he was very enthusiastic about talking about Van Halen. And about a month before the book came out, Van Halen Rising, this would have been in 2015— he had heard me on a podcast I did that was sort of a pre-book podcast, just talking generally about the project. And he said, "Oh, I was wondering what happened with the book, and I'm glad it's going to come out." And we were talking, and he was, you know, interested in talking more to me about Van Halen. And at some point after that, a friend of mine who uh, was kind of mentoring me through this book writing process, a person who I had really counted on for some good advice, said to me, "He said, uh, I said, oh, Ted, you know, I talked to Ted. So, oh, he said, oh, did you did you think about inviting him to the book signing in Pasadena?" And I said, uh, "No." Uh, what? Be like? Why would I do that? And he was like, "Well, why wouldn't you do that?" And, uh, okay. And so uh, he basically gave me the courage to do that, and uh, Ted said yes. He came down to Romans Books in Pasadena and sat with me and signed books. And he answered questions. And it was a really incredible moment for me as an author to have someone who was so involved in the making of Van Halen records. And involved with their career, say, yeah, this book was good enough that I'm happy to sit here with this guy and talk about Van Halen. And in the weeks that followed, I pitched the idea to writing a book with Ted. He was very much against, (laughs) he said to me, I don't want people to think I wrote the book. (laughs) I think in his way, some of his love letter to the artists that he worked with, who even if he didn't always get along with everyone he worked with, he's appreciative. And grateful for the opportunities he got from everyone, from Van Morrison to Bette Midler, that they, you know, he got the chance to work with these amazing talents. And so for him, it was predicated on the idea that it was going to be focused on the records and the artists, and that second that it would be understood that you know it was I was the guy who was kind of putting it together that it wasn't sort of a life project for Ted to sort of be able sure that he set the records straight or anything like that. It was never like that because actually it was all my idea to hmm. say the truth. It was it was all my idea.
0: It comes across, at least as far as I can tell, about Ted's. Uh, not passive but you know not not a a braggart but his personality really comes through in the story and it is very much music first so congrats on that because that is the way it feels okay but it must have been interesting because like with the van halen book if our listeners don't know and they haven't heard that first of all read greg's book and then listen to our podcast but you know that starts so early on and ends right when the band gets popular so I'm, you know, I'm just guessing you had to do a lot of detective work in that role. And then here you're just kind of the, not the filter or the conduit, but Ted's telling the story to you.
1: Right. The interesting thing was that I think when I (laughs) took on the project, I sort of thought it would be easier to write than Van Halen Rising. Not that I wasn't going to put a lot of effort into it, or I wasn't going to try to get everything lined up and very uh, engaging for the reader and well detailed and well researched, but I figured you're dealing with one person's story rather than with Van Halen Rising. I was trying to boil 200 plus people's experiences into one book, plus do newspaper and magazine research and flyers and all these other things. But the interesting thing was, I don't want to say it was as, at least as difficult and maybe more difficult, depending on how I feel from moment to moment, because, you know, with the Van Halen book, there were a lot of things I had to educate myself on, for example, again the geography of Los Angeles, which, you know, to me as a person who grew up in New Jersey and had been to L.A. a couple of times, L.A. was kind of L.A. I knew there was. Pasadena. I knew there was going to be downtown LA. I knew there was like Santa Barbara. I kind of knew, but to sort of have all these little towns that those guys played in. And then along with that, having to educate myself about the musical genealogy of the Van Halen brothers and Roth, sort of the stuff they listened to and kind of fill all those gaps for me and listening to the interviews I did and then kind of piecing together what I could to do that. But for this, you know, there were whole areas of Ted's career where I was completely, completely unknown to me. You know, it was a big heavy lift. There was a lot of me walking away from an interview with Ted uh, after spending the day with him in California or off the phone or an email and having to go through and go, oh, okay, now I need to figure out what the Jerry Mulligan Quartet did with Mm -hmm. Ted Baker. So these people who were stars in the 50s that Ted was a big fan of, I I familiarized myself with all the stuff. And this continued up through the catalog of a lot of his bigger acts, like even the Doobie Brothers, you know, I knew the hits and I had heard some of the records probably, but sort of having to go through it track by track because oftentimes Ted would point to some track on the second side of a third song that maybe seemed like filler to somebody. But to Ted, there was some important breakthrough for those guys musically, or he did something with the production, and he wanted to focus on that. So there was a lot of areas where I had to go through and fill in the gaps. And, And even beyond that, I really wanted to tell the story of Ted's childhood, because there were some things that I thought were really interesting, particularly the information about his uncle, who was a prisoner of war, and kind of ties into Ted's life pretty deeply. And so I did a lot of digging with that. Uh, all that stuff really took a lot of, lot of effort, which, which again, sort of made the book in some ways more challenging than the Van Halen book to write.
0: Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Ted. He's a native Californian, born in Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, he's really into jazz and proficient on several instruments. Of course, he's a surfer, and of course, he finds his way into a band. They open for the Beach Boys, Sly Stone produces them, and they— eventually morph into a band that's, you know, atop this sunshine pop movement in a band called Harper's Bazaar.
1: Yeah. And that, to me, something else that was interesting about Ted's career was he had a career as a pop star, wasn't just a producer. He was somebody who had this three or four year run where he was in a band that was relatively popular.
0: And can you tell the hijacking story? Because that resonates throughout his life, especially towards the end. I know he recounts it quite a bit.
1: Harper's Bazaar got signed to Warner Brothers in 1966 and they have a hit in early 1967 called Feeling Groovy, the Simon and Garfunkel song. So they, they covered that song. They uh, are able to launch a career off that, that song. They do three or four albums, four albums actually. And, uh, but by the time the fourth album rolled around, it was 1969 and the, Their music was sort of slipping from out of style. And the other thing that was going on was they just hadn't really been able to deliver another big hit. They'd always had hits on the soft pop charts or the adult contemporary charts, but they never really had another big Billboard pop hit. So what they were doing was they were doing these um, fly somewhere for a weekend and play two or three shows. And then they'd fly home and spend four or five days at home. So they weren't on the road like you would have been when they were touring with the Beach Boys. And so, uh, yeah, Ted in 1969, in Halloween 1969, he and his bandmates got on a plane in Los Angeles. And we're supposed to fly from LA to San Francisco. So it was just a quick red eye, like a one hour flight. And uh, the plane was actually hijacked by an individual who had been in the army and who had actually had a dispute about his discharge from the military and was uh, (laughs) interested in trying to have the plane fly all the way to Italy and, What ended up happening was that Ted and his bandmates were on the plane from uh, Los Angeles to uh, Denver. And it was quite a harrowing experience because the pilot was trying to tell the gentleman who had hijacked the plane that, oh, I can't fly you to Italy. Uh, We don't have enough fuel. Mm -hmm. Initially, the hijacker didn't seem to be convinced of that. So Ted and his bandmates were feeling pretty confident the plane was going to run out of fuel and they were going to crash. So it was quite a terrifying experience for for Ted yet, and kind of haunted him for the remainder of his life. That was a again one of those other episodes where he told me about that in an email, and I was like, <laughs> "What?" You know, I know that air piracy, quote unquote, was pretty common back then, but for him to tell that story was pretty amazing. Yeah.
0: But on on the flip side, you know, Warner Brothers and Ted make these extremely important lifelong relationships with Mo Austin and Lenny Warrinker. that would help his career throughout the rest of his days.
1: Yeah, I think the thing that was interesting about Ted's contact with Warner Brothers was Ted was on a label called Autumn Records with his bandmates in this band called the Tikis. Tikis was a a Santa Cruz, kind of like a Beach Boys meet the monkeys. The house producer for Autumn Records was uh, Sylvester Stone, or later to be known as Sly Stone. And so Ted had this initial great fortune to have Sly Stone be his producer for the first real sessions he ever did as a musician. And then what ended up happening was Autumn Records financially collapses and Warner Brothers comes in and buys up the assets one of the people who ended up being involved at Warner Brothers with deciding which acts were worthy of keeping was um, a young producer slash A&R man named Lenny Warnker. Lenny's father was the head of Liberty Records, which had had enormous, enormous success in the 50s. I mean, just a huge, huge record label. So he had kind of grown up in the biz and he was the guy that basically said this band, the Tikis, which was rebranded as Harper's Bazaar, have uh, an interesting vocal sound and could be marketable. And so Lenny is the guy who um, first produces Harper's Bazaar, actually produces all their albums. And then uh, Yamo yeah, Austin, who was, was the head of Reprise Records and later became the president and CEO of Warner Brothers, was the guy who was at the head of the company when Ted makes his shift from being an artist to being a tape listener. He takes an entry-level job at Warner Brothers after Harper's Bazaar breaks up, and his job is to sit in a windowless room with boxes of reel-to-reel tapes and listen to demos just in trying to find something worthwhile. And so Ted, to have to go from being a guy who was on stage with Bob Hope and Raquel Welch at San Diego Stadium, I mean, literally, to uh, you know the bottom-of-the-barrel sort of job at Warner Brothers. But he, he really wanted to make that shift and was very excited to do it. That was how he, he met Lenny and then got to work for Mo.
0: And, you know, he was so multi-talented instrumentally, you know, I would think that that helped him gain an interest in producing early because he switched pretty early on to say, you know, I want to do this side.
1: He really was a, and is an amazing musician. He, as a child, had the fortune of having his grandparents, owned a music store. His mother and father were both musicians. He grew up learning to play and becoming extremely proficient on trumpet, and then he took up the drums, played the piano. Uh, Eventually he learned to play guitar and he actually played guitar on stage with Harper's Bazaar. And so, yeah, he was a talent in terms of uh, being able to play instruments and he sang as well with Harper's Bazaar. Yeah. The interesting thing for Ted was that he never felt comfortable as a performer you know, he didn't mind playing drums on stage and he wouldn't have minded playing trumpet, you know, for a another performer who was singing or something like that. He would have been OK with that or play piano or something. But he was never a guy who wanted to be up in front. And with Harper's Bazaar, the way it worked, because Ted was one of the two vocalists in Harper's Bazaar, it sort of became a necessity that as a singer, he stepped out from behind the drum kit. And so he did a lot of that performing and he did it because he enjoyed being involved in the band. They got to make records. And that was actually one of the big motivators for him was he loved the studio so much, but when the time came to sort of, okay, the band's done, he was happy to sort of step away from that and try to leave that behind and go into the other aspect of the business, which was much more interesting to him, which was he wanted to be a record producer and was actually somebody who would stay late for sessions, stay after show up at the studio, you know, for no reason, just to sort of, he was in town to go to, down to Sunset Sound or go over to Western recorders in Hollywood and sit there and listen to what was going on and watch the engineers work so he could learn.
0: I think it's one of those two studios and his friendships allowed him to sit in on a Frank Sinatra recording session, right?
1: You know, he said in more than one, that was kind of the one he, he talked about in the book was the one he remembered most distinctly. But yeah, that was a really an amazing moment for him that he got to see Sinatra record. One of the things that I thought Ted really took away from that was he was already starting to kind of zero in on how things worked with the producers, how a session was run. Funny people make records today in the bedrooms, you know, sending tracks across the country. And I think that people would be interested, kind of have that eyewitness account from Ted of what it was like to have 25 instrumentalists in the room, drummer, organ player, brass section, string section, background singers, all in this giant room. They would do it, you know, in just basically three hours, they would do three songs. And so while everything might not be quote unquote one take straight through, they were all playing together and they might stop it and say, OK, intercut, stop. And then they would pick it up for maybe like, you know, the second verse and start again. But it would, you know, they try to do it in one shot this was sort of like the the premier type of session would be a Sinatra session. So for Ted to see that as a young age, I think that really opened his eyes.
0: It wasn't his last, but I think it was his first where he said Sinatra hit every vocal the first time, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, he said it was incredible. I mean, he's actually, it's funny. There are actually some recordings, somebody leaked out of the uh, archives recordings of these sessions, basically the the session tapes and you can hear, you know, he didn't make many mistakes. I mean, he would, he might say, Oh, hang on and go back and want to do something over again. But that was mostly because he didn't like the feel and he wanted the band to go a certain way. But yeah, Ted said it was incredible. That's the interesting thing too, is that, you know, going from seeing Sinatra to having to work with a host of individuals of different levels of ability to function in the studio, Sinatra was actually totally at home at the studio and loved the, uh, the performance aspect of it working in the studio. He didn't want to spend all day in there. You know, Ted said he really seemed like he was enjoyed having people watching and sort of the whole camaraderie of having all the musicians there. He really liked that part of the biz go from there to have to work with people you know who don't have that level of confidence right, right for ted too to sort of to, to see that later on kind of his own career as he worked with as a producer
0: so he's still a listener or actually after that point he's a listener at warner brothers and 1970 he opens up a tape box marked the doobie brothers mm-hmm. and it's funny because those early doobies had a really different reputation and image than what would happen a little bit later and so ted goes and scouts them out and he's a little uneasy with some of those gigs
1: This was a big, obviously a big moment in Ted's career. There was a demo that was delivered to Warner Brothers, and Ted was the guy who got to listen to it. And, you know, he really liked a lot of things about the demo. He told me that, you know, I didn't think all the songs were quote-unquote great, but there were a couple of songs in that demo I thought were really, really good. And he was interested in their sound. They had this two-part harmony, which was later he would learn was Tom Johnson and Pat Simmons. They... Would also had this combination of a kind of acoustic and some electric stuff. The way they, they played their lines and their runs maybe was a little reminiscent of Moby Grape and a couple of other groups that Ted really, really liked. And so, yeah, he grabbed Lenny Warrinker and they went up and they checked out the Doobie Brothers at a bar. And it was a biker bar outside of San Jose in the woods called the Chateau. Ted and, and Lenny went in there and uh, were wearing basically, as you might dress for as a college student in the 1960s, with like, you know, polo and... <laughs> pressed slacks and these guys were in there with their leather and it was you know it was a real full-on hell's angels satan slaves i mean real full-on biker bar and because that was the the doobies audience and so the thing that ted talked about too is he thought was really interesting was that they the guys in the band had kind of this leather and jeans image the harmonies they were really quite you know angelic harmonies against this really kind of tough looking image and he thought that was interesting too and Lenny wiped them, and then uh, eventually, uh, yeah, the label bought in, and this is going to be a big chance for Ted because Ted actually gets the opportunity to co-produce with Lenny Wonker. Lenny had produced the Everly Brothers. He had had quite a young career, was, was doing quite well, so Lenny, who was... Ted's friend was happy to partner with Ted to go come in the studio with me. This will be your first production experience, but we'll do it together. And it's co produced by Ted Templeman and Lenny Walker. And that was the Doobie Brothers debut album, which came out in 1971 in the spring.
0: And those recording sessions also featured Hell's Angels, drugs, Jack Daniels, holstered guns, and something called Ted Templeman's Equalizer.
1: I mean, you know, there's certain records. and I'm going to guess it's probably like this for a lot of producers. It's, you know, the first album you do with the band, you have the most vivid memories because it's the the new, all the newness of it and sort of the, it's not familiar in terms of you don't kind of know what's going to happen next and you kind of don't have a, a kind of a handle on everybody in the band maybe. And so, yes, they did this series of sessions up at the studio in San Mateo, California. Ted said that he learned a valuable lesson from that experience that he tried to stick to and almost always, you know, you didn't want observers in the studio. There's too much uh, distraction and there's too many people kind of chiming in with their opinion and these types of things. But in this case, it, because these were the, the Hells Angels and, you know, Tom and Pat were friends with these guys. And they were uh, happy to have their friends come sit in the studio in the back on the sofa, watch the, the sessions. You know, John Hartman, the drummer, Ted, remember that he had a gun and a holster at one point. And I don't know. I don't know the context of it. But, yes, Ted said it was unsettling to have the drummer and the his band is wearing like basically a cowboy gun holster around his waist yes the Ted Temple equalizer, which I thought was a funny story which was that I think the guys in the Doobie Brothers kind of they respected Ted and respected Lenny and understood that they were the ones who were going to bat for those guys as a A new act and everything. And one of the guys in the band made this club up and, you know, it was called Ted Templeman's Equalizer and carved into it just on a lathe, you know, kind of a joke to say, here you go, here you go, here's what you need if you ever need to really clear the room or something like that. Yeah, I mean, conversations we had about that record were really all about him talking about the mistakes that he felt he made or, you know, he called them mistakes, but in some ways they were just learning experiences where you learn what to do and what not to do and how to handle musicians. And it was all new. He had been a recording artist and had been, as quote unquote, on the other side of the glass sitting out in the big studio room or in the sound booth singing and had the producer and the engineer on the other side of the glass looking at him. But now he had flipped roles. And so for him learning what not to do as much as what to do after the, the Doobie Brothers sessions are over, and especially because the Doobie Brothers' first record didn't sell well at all. I mean, actually, it, it barely sold at all. It was actually a complete bomb. And so that was something else that was kind of stuck in Ted's mind, too, is didn't sell. And while it wasn't only Ted's name on the cover as a producer, obviously, it's not an ideal situation. It's your first opportunity to produce something and it doesn't sell.
0: We're speaking with Greg Renoff, whose new book is Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music. Well, Ted did have a lot of people in his corner. And another one was Joe Smith, who was a legend at Warner Brothers Records. He would introduce him to one legendary Northern Irish singer, which Ted would co-produce a legendary album, right?
1: You know, Joe Smith was somebody that Ted prolifically thanked when we would have conversations to me just and you know, Joe gave me the chance, Joe gave me the chance basically, Joe Smith was the guy who greenlighted Ted and Lenny to produce the Doobie Brothers album. And then later, Joe had really taken a liking to Ted. And even though the Doobie Brothers record had not taken off, he was introducing him to people saying, this guy's one of our young producers in training. We think he has a lot of talent. Introduced him to Van Morrison, which was a huge moment in Ted's career because you know Van was somebody who was, I think, only moderately interested in having someone produce him at all. And so the fact that Joe put in the good word for Ted and Ted and Van hit it off. Van was said, OK, you know, you can work with me on this record and quote unquote co-produce, even though really Van was the guy who was just playing. Obviously, he was, out, you know, out in the studio, had no real interest in the the mixing process. It the a thing, but it was a co-production situation. But for Ted, it was a big deal because Van was a huge deal and was a guy who was obviously a transcendent talent. And Ted knew that. I mean, right out of the gate, obviously, Ted knew what, what kind of talent this guy was.
0: It's on this record that Van in particular, but Lenny as well, would teach Ted the value of being in the moment and not trying to fix every mistake and sometimes less is more in production, right?
1: Yeah, this was, this was something that Ted really talked to me about in great detail was the experience of going, okay, you know, I did the, did the Doobie brothers records, you know, I, I wasn't quite as maybe as prepared as I needed to be. I hadn't really thought everything through. I'm going to try to, you know, basically try to think three steps ahead with everything and have everything ready to roll and, he had a plan for every single track, a, a really good, what he felt was a really good plan. But when he got in the studio, Van it was immediately evident, you know, a third day or two that Van wasn't interested in anyone else's plan. Van just had the idea of the, the arrangement in his head for the song. And as Ted told me many times, when Van would walk in the studio, he would, didn't even give the engineer a chance to get levels. And actually the plan that was the engineer and Ted had was that, after a while was that the band would get there early and they would get levels on everything. They would get levels and get ready. And just as soon as Van walked in, they would push record and Van would pick up his guitar and go one, two, three, and go into whatever song. So there was Ted's idea of, quote unquote, trying to have a plan for every song didn't work. And he, you know, even after the first few days, he sort of learned that if he pushed Van too hard to sort of, you know, should go back and do that again, or this isn't really, Van would just sort of shut down or walk out, leave walk literally walk away and just leave and, you know, come back when he felt like it. Not that he would be like enraged or anything, but just that it just wasn't going to work. He just wasn't interested in having that type of creative relationship. He had the song in his head. He wanted to do it and get it done and move on to the next thing. Yeah, for Ted, you know, he quickly learned that you have to get things down on the fly, and that as you alluded to, there may be a bum note or something. Maybe the bass player missed a note. Ted would sort of had to learn eventually to go. You know what? The performance is good. Van's performance is good as a whole. No one's going to hear that dismissed cue or something that just, you know, as long as it wasn't a real clunk or something really egregious, you just leave it and move on because the performance was real and raw. If you did try to get Van to come back and do something more than once, you know, Ted said it didn't get better. Typically, it just got, you know, he just became kind of caught up in his own angst about things and just it was just better to get it done. And that wouldn't work for every single act Ted did. For example, the Doobie Brothers records, Ted really got to explore his intricate productions with those guys in terms of thinking about having two drummers play at the same time on tracks and these types of things that, you know, that would make recording the Doobie Brothers a much different experience than recording Van Morrison or Van Halen, which is sort of the, You know, the later parallel, which was get the first or second take down, get it as live as possible. If you have to patch up a mistake, you patch it up. You know, you don't want to have Van Halen playing the same song 15 times in the studio over and over again. You're going to lose that energy and that spontaneity. And that's what the Van Morrison recordings were like very much first or second take. And Van was, as Ted emphasized to me, too, he said, we never had to go and go, oh, Van, sing this word again or sing this verse again and kind of patch something up that he did. He said we never had to do that sort of punch in with Van. It was just always dead on good.
0: It's funny, one of one of the more mundane producers' jobs or tasks uh, is that Ted had to drive Van to and from the studio. And once uh, in a bad neighborhood a few blocks away, that led to a bit of an altercation, didn't
1: it? Yeah, the uh, interesting thing about that story was that was one of the first stories that Ted told me about Van. I mean, that was like, it was, you know, obviously was another another thing that was hard to forget. Right. Yeah, Ted and Van had gone to the studio in, in uh, San Francisco in this neighborhood, and the, the neighborhood was a little bit sketchy, and they got there to do this nighttime session, and they were walking, and uh, two guys came up to them and started hassling them and said something to Van and kind of stepped towards Van and was kind of going to mock him because, whatever, I just thought this would be fun to mess with these two guys walking through the neighborhood they don't belong in. And then Van grabbed this guy and slammed him against the wall and sort of case they kind of shaking him, and the, the two guys got so scared they ran off, and these were like the neighborhood tough guys, <laughs> you know, and then uh you know, Van had grown up in Belfast during the difficult times there, and it was obvious that Van had had more than his sheriff's street fights and it wasn't, like, the least bit perturbed because as they started walking again, Van asked Ted about the saxophone part or something. He was just, he was like, Ted said he didn't even, like, say anything. It was just right. like, so what are we going to do about those drums? Like, he just picked up the conversation, like, not like he had tripped over a stone or something and just, you know, nothing. not even worth remarking over. So, yeah, uh, fun, uh, fun story from Ted.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. Another one, which is not quite as funny— there was a really different opinion and some fallout for the single mix for Tupelo Honey, which would be a huge hit for Van.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, the thing that Ted always said to me about Van was that Van was not really interested in the sonics of things. It was just wasn't his his forte. He was not going to be a guy who was going to go, you know, we need to lift the bass frequencies, 10 decibels, whatever. it is. He was not that type of person when it came to the studio. And so... They had recorded Tupelo Honey, and there had been a problem with the recording. The engineer and Ted hadn't had the chance or didn't isolate the instruments properly. And there was a leakage between, I think the guitar was on the drum track. And so that's a problem when you're mixing is because you want to have the instruments separated. So typically what you would do, you have these big foam barricades you would put up around the studio so that you can have the drums' microphones not picking up what the guitar player is playing through the amplifier, which you might be recording at the same time in another part in the studio room. And so there was leakage, and so it made it hard to mix it, because if you tried to lift the guitar, you'd get more drums and vice versa. So Ted had gone and gotten Don Landy, who later became, of course, his right-hand man, to um, help him repair this tape by removing some of the problems. So they proved the sound of the recording, and when Van heard the new recording, Van still liked the old one. <laughs> Ted tried to talk him out of it, talk him out of it, talked him out of it. And, you know, it, but as Ted observed to me, Van was co-producing. So in the end,
0: Van wins. Right.
1: And So, OK, you know, he tried his best to talk him out of it. But Van wanted to put out the original mix, which Ted thought was flawed. And so then, yes, the record hit the radio. And Van, I guess, heard it in his car or whatever. And he called up Ted and said, hey, Ted, you know, uh, uh, you know, I listened to the song and. Tupelo Honey it was on the radio and uh, I think you were right. Let's put out the other version. <laughs> you know, so so Ted said he about lost it because it was, you know, that was one of those things that they had spent tremendous amount of time trying to fix it. That was one of the uh, the challenges of working with Van. He had his own opinions. You know, in the end, Ted said he just had to get them done. You had to like get the records done.
0: A lot of people talk about some of the difficulties working with him. I think it's probably a testament to Ted. A lot of the relationships he formed would carry forward for quite a a long time. You mentioned uh, Don Landy, who had worked for decades with him. But there was, you know, Ronnie Montrose, Lowell George, and Little Feet, Linda Ronstadt. They'd all turn up. And uh, there's a really funny story in your book about Lowell George and his model airplanes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, sure. So Ted had the opportunity in 1971 to produce Little Feet because uh, the first Little Feet record had come out some months earlier and had not really sold all that well. And in addition, Lowell George had really clashed with Russ Titleman who was one another one of the house producers of Warner Brothers. And what ended up happening was that uh, Ted had the chance again to, to go and just do the second record with him. And Lowell really wanted to redo this song "Willin." And when Ted was able to kind of get a beat on what was going on with the previous record and what had happened and that uh, Lowell had actually cut his hand trying to uh, tune up a model airplane engine. Lowell had grabbed the motor and it was running because it was kind of vibrating off this table and he grabbed it and cut his hand <laughs> so badly he couldn't play. So Ry Cooter was actually played on the first Little Feet record, the version of Willen. So it's one of these interesting situations where they redid the same song on two successive albums. Yeah, obviously, that's one of Lowell's greatest songs. It covered by Linda Ronstadt oh, and no. Steve Earle. And I mean, just like on and on and on, the people who covered that song. But yeah, Willen was a, a special song for for Ted to yeah get on that record. And he just, yeah, he loved Little Feet so much and it really tore him up that that record particularly didn't sell. He really wanted his artists to get the credit and acclaim and have the hearing by the public that they deserve. He thought his job was as, quote unquote, the lighting man to kind of put the best spotlight on the on the talent so people can go, oh yeah, this, this individual is so great. You know, how could we not like this album? And so when the Little Feet record the second one, sailing shoes, didn't do all that well. It was a big blow to Ted psychologically.
0: Maybe it's because Lowell had a very specific plan for his model airplane.
1: <laughs> yeah, he was a character. I mean, that was the thing about. Ted, he had a lot of Lowell stories. Ted was never sure whether Lowell was joking or not, but Lowell said that he flew model airplanes because he wanted to fly in drugs from Mexico or something (laughs) like that. So, yeah, Ted never said he knew for sure whether Lowell was joking or not, but he said it, you know, totally deadpan now. He said it to him.
2: That sounds probably like Lowell George. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that Uh,
0: you know, another difficult artist was Captain Beefheart. And that's mm-hmm. one that doesn't it doesn't end as friendly, I guess.
1: I don't think Ted ever really found a way to get on with him, and I think that was the thing. Is like if, if you have spent time with Ted. He's a pretty affable guy. I'm pretty easygoing, and also is a person who has a kind of a good sense on what the mission is on any given session, which is to get the record done. It's not about winning every argument, or for him, a lot of times it was just about trying to form consensus and make sure people felt good so there'd be a good feeling on the records and kind of get through, even when there were personality crises or clashes. But yeah, uh, Beefheart had an unusual way of seeing things in the world and did some really wacky things in the studio, including some stories I kind of left out of the book. And again, he thought Beefheart was incredibly talented and wrote these amazing songs and had this incredible ability to compose. Where he was basically writing all the parts for all the songs, according to what Ted remembered, that Beefheart was the guy who kind of put all the pieces together and then orchestrated his group there, uh, the Magic Band. When Beefheart one night kind of went off the rails and started screaming at Don Landy and was said he was basically was Don's fault that Beefheart couldn't sing something. Um, Yeah, Ted and Beefheart almost came to blows inside the control room at Amigo Studios in Hollywood. For Ted, the idea of trying to take B-farts really offbeat, avant-garde jazz, blues, I don't even know what you call it, just style, and make it more commercially appealing. That was one of Ted's... Um goals with that record was to let's get him so people can appreciate him not so he just loses his identity but to sort of make it so the public will kind of grab onto him and it didn't quite work
0: ted of course kept working with the doobies you want to talk about a relationship that worked you know the three albums from 72 to 74 would yield listen to the music rocking down the highway jesus is just all right long train running china grove blackwater that is a hell of a run 1975, however, would be a pivotal change for mm-hmm. the Doobies. And Tom Johnston, who Ted Templeman called the heart and soul of the band, fell ill in the middle of a tour.
1: Yeah, that was a rough, a rough stretch for Tom. Tom had been uh, battling problems with his stomach for quite a while and had been losing weight. And they just finished up the Stampede record, if I remember correctly. And they went on the road and they were in Baton Rouge and Ted got a call from the— the Doobies manager saying that Tom had collapsed. He had bleeding ulcers and they had really flared up and he was in really bad shape. He you know, probably had not been taking care of himself. It's easy to bemoan the, the shortcomings of the music industry today and that there are many. And you know, but one of the things I think is that the touring is probably a lot more humane than it was back then where it was, you know, you were playing a lot of shows every year. And so with a band like the Doobies, they had a basically a tour album cycle, which was you, you spent 200 days on the road a year and then you wrote a record, you recorded a record, and then you went out the next year and did 200 dates and on and on and on. And so... When Ted got the call, he was worried and took Tom quite a bit to recuperate. But in the interim, what the Doobies did was they hired a guy named Mike McDonald, who was a session player, was playing clubs in Los Angeles, and he'd done sessions for Steely Dan. And the reason why he was picked to fill in for Tom was that Jeff Skunk Baxter, who had been in Steely Dan as a you know session player and a road guy for some years, had left Steely Dan but remembered how good that Mike McDonald was as an instrumentalist and as a singer. And, and Mike filled in for that tour. And then uh, when they got off the road, Ted had every expectation that Mike would go on his merry way. You know, thanks for your, thanks for the assistance. And, but Tom was going to come back, but Tom was still not a hundred percent. And so, uh, yeah, Mike got an audition with Ted.
0: And, uh, you know, he would become a yacht rock legend, but, you know, he was unsure of himself. He'd play a few songs for Ted and, you know, he was very humble about him. And Ted's like, that's great. You know, let's record that
1: yeah I think I think Ted spent a lot of time talking about that in the book, and he really emphasized that to me in our conversations, which didn't really you know when I first heard it it was a little hard for me to wrap my head around you know the fact that Eddie van Halen could have crisis of confidence or that Mike McDonald would have a crisis of confidence but he he was trying to I think convey even if you have someone who has supreme talent, doesn't mean that's what every waking moment is like for them. And so for Ted, I think he was trying to pull back the curtain on Mike and say, you know this guy It was endearing. He didn't realize how great he was. And and also for Ted, you know, something where he really had to tell the truth to Mike, which was that he thought Mike's songs were great. You know, he just basically kind of keep him confident, being like, come on, you know, you can do this. And, you know, that Mike was definitely... Kind of living with the ghost of Tom Johnson, the way Ted conveyed it—that they both had enormous respect for each other, but it was just—it was hard because you know Mike felt like he was stepping into the role of the Doobies as the front guy, and that you know it was—it was hard to replace the guy who did Long Train Running and China Grove, and we could go on and on. Right, just all right. those great songs where you know Mike was quote-unquote replacing the guy who was the identifiable front of the Doobies more than anybody else in the group, with the voice and the, the guitar style and all that stuff—he was the guy.
0: But McDonald does just that. And on 77's album, The Fault Line, Ted Templeman says that's where the band really becomes McDonald's band. And that is a major shift musically, commercially, image-wise Oh yeah. from what it was. They're, they're not Hell's Angels anymore.
1: No. And it's interesting for any number of reasons, but for the band to make that turn and still remain popular— you know, Ted would give those guys the credit, but it's a testament to Ted's ability to sort of massage that, or I don't know what the word is, to sort of navigate that incredible change going from the, the doobie sound and it evolved so so dramatically. Um, it did cause in the longer run, you know, problems for the band commercially insofar as that fault line didn't sell. I mean it didn't sell as well. It probably went platinum, I don't remember, but it sold Well, you know, and that was part of the other thing that was kind of contributing to some of the distress in the band was that they had changed so drastically and they were having to try to find their way with a new musical identity and with a lot of new members. And that's the other thing, too, that's really interesting about the Doobies is you had almost constant member changes. There was a lot of personnel changes within the group with a lot of personality changes.
0: We're speaking with Greg Renoff, whose new book is Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music. You know, there would be more Little Feet records. He'd work with Carly Simon, Ricky Lee Jones, who I love. But 77 was ground zero for what would become one of Ted's greatest acts. And he goes, I think it was to Pasadena to see Van Halen in a small club. And he immediately responds to Eddie Van Halen's talent. In fact, I think he compares him to Charlie Parker. But he's a bit unsure of David Lee Roth.
1: Yeah, that's the uh, that's the interesting thing about hearing this all from Ted. You know, when Ted first saw Van Halen in, in the nightclub, he was just absolutely blown away by Eddie Van Halen's talent. He just thought he was a transcendent musician. And that's interesting to hear him talk about that. As you mentioned, Charlie Parker, you know he's putting it into context of guys who are Ted's heroes when he was a kid, and they were not rock guys. These were jazz guys. Right. These were guys who were the absolute virtuosos of the uh, the 50s and 60s when it came to jazz. So when Ted saw Ed Van Halen and thought, my gosh, this guy is the guitar player of the future, it really did shape Ted's perception of the band. In other words, that Ted was said when he first saw them that first night or first two nights, he was just totally locked in on Ed. I mean, he liked the band liked the song he was like he said it was like almost like falling in love with a girl like a, you know you just sort of like locked in on this one thing like he ends up signing the band to warner brothers and this is 1977 and they do a demo in sunset sound in hollywood and when ted listens back to the demo he was really concerned because he didn't think roth necessarily had the the chops to cut it as a, a singer you know he told me and i think we talked about this in the book is there's some of the stuff that Dave sang in the studio in those demo sessions. Just wasn't acceptable. I mean, just wasn't okay. I mean, just wasn't going to be something you could put on a record. <laughs> you know, from Ted's point of view, part of it was was kind of self inflicted wounds. He talked a lot about vocal melody. Like we listened to some of the demos together, and said, you know, the problem is that he can't sing the melody he wrote, and that's a problem. You you have to know as a singer, oh, this is not something I can pull off. Ted mulled over trying to think about what would happen if he basically pulled Roth out of the group, and but in the end, Ted was really impressed with roth's intellect his sense of humor his whole approach to fronting the band and kind of saw that roth did do some things that were certainly distinctive for example the way he did his train whistle sound with his voice the, the screams and roth had a vocal sound that was was distinctive and ted really emphasized that to me over and over again it's not just about having a perfect voice he, he said to me and i'm not sure we put this in the book or not but he said you go to 20 broadway shows over 20 nights in new york and listen and you would hear the most amazing voices they'd hit all the notes they'd be great but he said they're not distinctive in most cases. It's not something that's going to perk up on the radio because it sounds too generic. It's not a knock on them as performers or singers. You said in the you know the context of a lot of things, it's perfect. But on the radio, you want something that's going to kind of catch your ear. And go, oh, that sounds unusual. I don't know this. This is cool. This is different. This is this is weird. When he heard Roth saying, you know, he said there there was that distinctiveness there and that discussion about the whole Roth Sammy Hagar thing, Ted said in the book that uh he would have made the biggest mistake in rock history if he had tried to put Sammy in the group. The band wouldn't have made it as big without Dave.
0: Definitely. Definitely. And you know, the label, they put them on the road. I think they opened for the likes of Black Sabbath on that tour. And the album is just a huge smash. But soon enough, of course, as you mentioned, that back to the basement at David Lee Roth's father's house to work on the follow-up album. And that basement has its own bit of a legend, doesn't it? I know that in the book, Ted is certainly a fan.
1: Yeah, it was, uh, it was really interesting when Ted talked about that because he said at some point in the midst of with working with Van Halen in the late 70s, he kind of realized it was such a, a weird, active, I don't know, fate or something like that, that Ted had a house in Pasadena. The Van Halen brothers lived 10 minutes from Ted and 10 minutes from David Lee Roth. They all basically lived very close together. And he said it was just sort of a thing where we could all be there so fast mm. to a rehearsal. He said it was just finished dinner and drive to Roth's house and we go in the basement and it would be like being on the moon. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing to think about in that context is that ted really emphasized to me how well rehearsed those guys were and that's why the albums typically only took a couple three weeks to do was that they had done so many hours in the basement working on the songs woodshedding them rearranging them thinking about things and so when they went in the studio it could be first or second take because they were so well rehearsed in other words it sounds spontaneous but it's very rehearsed but it's spontaneous because Uh those guys play in their sleep you know it's just like it's just right let's do it right now and it's going to be just dead on right he was a big fan of that bass. And the whole routine they worked up together to sort of yeah, get off the road, rehearse, figure out the songs, go in the studio, and those guys would go on the road again.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people might be surprised at, at how cooperative and efficient Van Halen was at that point, according to Ted. you know, It's funny, a lot of people think uh, the opening cover on that record, You're No Good, was Ted's idea, because Linda Ronsad, it just recently had a huge hit with it. But it wasn't his idea, was it?
1: No, he was really... Uh, it was interesting, that was one of the the more uh, interesting conversations I had with him about the covers because sometimes I would say things to him like, oh, you know, isn't that your idea? because that's what you know, Wikipedia said. And I had no, you know, I'd never had a conversation with Ted Temple and about this before or, or anybody. And he was, yeah, he would be very um, adamant about that to sort of say, well, no, I'll tell you, the dancer on the street was the one that was his idea. Yeah, he was, he was in favor of doing cover songs, for example, that you're no good. Dave is the one who came up with that idea to do that song. And so for something like, you Really Got Me or Happy Trails, those were songs that the band had in their repertoire and brought to the table. And Ted chose for an album rather than those guys coming to Ted and Ted saying, Oh, yeah, here's what's going to happen. We're going to do all these cover songs. And, you know, for Ted, it was sort of him embracing the songs that they had already done, but also trying to help them, to be honest with you, find a way to uh, chart success. Thought, Let's do You Really Got Me. You guys do it really well. I've heard it played live. Ted heard it the night he saw those guys in in Hollywood playing or the Starwood playing, and uh, he um, wanted to incorporate that. You're No Good was another song, though, that the band kind of brought to Ted rather than Ted sort of bringing it to the band.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned he did have the philosophy of if you do a cover tune, you've already got the audience halfway there. And if you kill it, you really kill it.
1: Yeah, and I think the other thing, too, to think about is that obviously a band like Van Halen could write, and that was part of their, their calling card was the great writing of Eddie Van Halen. On the flip side of that, Ted was coming out of a a 60s context where everyone from, you know, Frank Sinatra to Harper's Bazaar to Andy Williams, they did other people's music. And I understand that there are different types of artists, but that was kind of the norm. You know, if it's a great song, well, you know what? Andy Williams should do um, The Impossible Dream. He didn't write The Impossible Dream, but Andy Williams should do it because it's a great song. Yeah.
0: And, you know, at this point in time. They do Dance the Night Away, which is a feel good tune. And, you know, it's a platinum album again for the band, but something different from them. And then they write Everybody Wants Some that ends up on Women and Children First. And that record marks, you know, kind of the beginning of Eddie's fascination with keyboards. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of to Ted's chagrin, he, he preferred the guitar, but that drastically changed Van Halen's sound.
1: That was another thing that Ted really wanted to emphasize and really wanted to, I think, emphasize in print was that, you know, Ted had always been okay with ed playing keyboards on records you know jump of course is that where we're going here that's a very different you know really different sound than what came before
0: you mentioned so ted was not originally a big fan of jump perhaps van halen's biggest song ever right
1: yeah i think that was actually one of the harder parts for me to write in the book in conversation with ted because there was some nuance there that i wanted to try to get across which was that when he first heard the keyboard idea for Chomp, he wasn't really enthused. He didn't think that the sort of what he considered to be the synthesizer-based material that Ed was working on was going to fit within the context of Van Halen. Ed had built his own recording studio, 5150, in his backyard with the help of Don Landy. And so the album was being, which was 1984, was being recorded in Ed's backyard. And Alex, Don Landy, the engineer, and Ed stayed up one night and they basically re-recorded Chomp. And so it went from kind of the, the initials Demo idea, which was just sort of Ed tinkering on his keyboard, playing it to like a little drum machine thing to a full blown Alex play drums and and Ed played the keyboards and sort of built out this whole basic track, the keyboard track and the drum track. And when Ted heard that, he was like, Damn, this is actually really good. (laughs) I really think this is good. But the thing was, here there's that nuance where I I don't want people to lose it, is that even though he thought it was cool, he didn't think it would necessarily fit within the context of Van Halen. He was worried that it was going to be such a detour from what those guys were usually doing, that he was afraid it was going to just not fit. Like he just didn't want something to kind of come out and people to go, I can't accept this. As Van Halen, maybe as a producer, some producers, he said, I wasn't going to do that because Ed felt so passionately about this one song. I could have said, we're not doing it. There's no, you know, we're not doing it. And could have said, no way. said, you know, I didn't say that. I said, let's work on it. And they worked on it and they kind of built it out. um, Ted gives a lot of credit to Dave for coming up with the, the jump idea and the, the whole vocal melody, and as Ted stressed to me many, many times, uh, a riff and chords doesn't make a song. Right, you got to have a vocal, you got to have a melody, you got to have that other part filled in there to have a pop song. Once it came together, you know, he just said, "This is this is actually an incredibly cool thing." But again, Ted's apprehension was he was afraid that it wasn't going to be embraced by the public, the Van Halen listening public. At the end of the chapter, Ted is obviously fully willing to concede that he had that one wrong and that ed was dead on right i think one of the to ed for seeing his vision through i think ted really understands that ed had progressed to a place where his creative focus on what it meant to be a musician in the studio had changed where he was more interested in sort of composing basically moving towards wanting to produce his own music and saw his vision through and you know ted has that very funny line in the book where he says that uh you know one of the things i said to ed that actually may have irked him was that it sounds like something you'd hear in a stadium Meaning the a baseball stadium, meaning the demo, mm-hmm. the very early sound like you know, kind of like the organ music right. at a ballpark. Ted right, says right. Uh, t- t- later on, of course, you know, I, you can't turn up a single sporting event in America without hearing jump exactly. played at some point. It's like you know, it's like so. It was I was I was right about that, but I was wrong again. So it was definitely an interesting kind of lifting of the curtain there to hear, see the push and pull there, and can understand as a producer as you're trying to steer an artist one way, but on the other hand, the artist it's their art and their feeling. Right so invested in this thing, and you have to kind of find that way forward. and That's why, obviously, Ted found a way to to make it work, even if it was a bumpy road.
0: Well, you know, that's the point I think that really comes across throughout the entire book, is how supportive he is of the artists and and pushes them, you know, perhaps to try things harder if it's not his first take. You know, I think one good example is is the band, as Van Halen starts to splinter for a number of reasons. You know, David Lee Roth drifts out, and Ted uh, works on, Crazy from the Heat, which is a -a one-of-a-kind little EP.
1: That's uh, something, too, that was really, for me, sitting with him and talking with him, and it's sort of like a 180 from what you had heard, because, you know, Ted had never really come out and talked about this stuff before. You know, he had done some interviews over the years, but it was never, you know, no one was going to sit down and say, Ted Templeman, tell us about the Van Halen breakup, other than just sort of a sentence or two in Rolling Stone or something. He didn't really see the Crazy from the Heat EP, Is being much more as a fun diversion to sort of give everybody in Van Halen some breathing room and give Roth maybe a chance to blow off some of his own, you know, creative frustrations about the way things had gone, where maybe his musical taste maybe had been sidelined a little bit on 1984. Roth was kind of notoriously not a huge fan of the keyboard stuff as well, and so. But what ended up happening was that Crazy from the Heat became this huge, huge smash, and so instead of it giving them breathing room and and giving Dave a chance to to, uh, work out some of his creative impulses it sort of became a friction point with him in van halen the way he tells it he said i just didn't see that coming i you know i thought it was a win-win it keeps van halen in the public eye for a few months no one has to do anything dave can sort of have his moment in the sun and then they go back and they make another record but it actually was probably another contributing factor to those guys going the wrong way in terms of their relationship yeah it, it was a interesting perspective from ted to hear all that stuff where he, you know he saw it as something that he thought was going to be helpful to van halen and In the end he kind of realizes it didn't help at all
0: we're speaking with Greg Renoff, whose new book is Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music. And, you know, I think we've recounted some things here, but I wonder if a lot of people don't know exactly what producers do. Some of it is is buttons and levels and all that, and some of it is quite different, you know, maybe some personal things. And we've recounted some of that stuff, the crazy stuff from... You know lowell george or or uh, David Lee Roth. There's a couple of things I want to ask you really quickly about. And you can give me a quick take on them because there's three stories, two stories and and then one one follow-up that I think are really funny. One of the really hilarious episodes early on was with the great Muscle Shoals fame piano player Spooner Oldham, who has to go get a harmonica, I think it was.
1: I think it's an accordion, an accordion. Oh, yeah, it's a great story. yeah, um. Lenny Orenker was producing a Spooner Olam who was a piano player was working the session and and Lenny decided he wanted an accordion on the track and said Spooner do you have an accordion and Spooner said yeah man I got an accordion he goes okay where is it he goes "It's, it's at home he goes all right well can you go get it yeah okay go get it and come back and and Spooner was gone for like two days and came back and you know Lenny sees Spooner walk in the studio with an accordion he's like where have you been? I've been calling you a crazy, I've been answering the phone. What the hell's going on? He goes, told you, man, I went home to get my accordion. It was in new Orleans. (laughs) You know, they were in Los Angeles recording on this food record. decided to take Warner brothers up on a free trip home and like flew home on Warner brothers time to get his accordion or something like that.
0: So, so producers have to put up with that. Uh, Another story. And I think Ted might've been co-producing or he might've just been in the studio with miles Davis and miles Davis asked him a quick question. And that's the end of the conversation.
1: Yeah, so that was a, actually, I think that was, Ted was actually in the boardroom, and uh, Miles Davis had come to Warner Brothers to be schmoozed, basically, by the higher style. He was thinking about coming and signing to Warner Brothers, and, of course, Mo Austin was one of the most powerful men in the music industry, and was kind of a legend. And that uh, Miles Davis, who could be very blunt, you know, was sitting around and was talking to some of the other people on the A&R team or other executives, and Mo Austin kept asking Miles Davis questions or talking to him, and eventually Miles Davis turned to Mo Austin and said, Hey, man, are you a musician? And Austin's like, no, it goes, why the hell am I talking to you? And basically, like, you know, turned to some other people, presumably Ted and some other people in the room who were musicians, you know, about making records or something like that, whatever he wanted to talk about. But, yeah, it's like.
0: End of story.
1: Insults Mo Austin, you know, but Mo was, you know, supposedly was just, you know, had dealt with worse than that in yeah. his, his career. So he just kind of went along with it.
0: Well, there's a quote in your book that I thought really gets to what I thought was the heart of Ted Templeman. And it's when Madonna asked him for some advice. Can you recount that one?
1: Yeah. So, uh, that was one of those stories that Ted initially had not remembered. And we were talking and when I was working with him writing the book, one of the things I did was he would talk about certain sessions and, you know, I'd say, yeah, I think I kind of figured out when that happened. And it would have been in the summer of 84. And we kind of would talk about that. And he goes, he remembered one day he goes, Oh, summer of 84. I remember this now. He remembered he was in the city and got asked to sit down with Madonna. Madonna was in New York and Ted was there because he was working with David Lee Roth. And so the guys back in LA asked Ted to sit with Madonna and Try to convince her not to release "Like a Virgin" as her first single from her record. There was concern that it was too risque and that radio would play that maybe MTV was going to be uneasy with the idea of a song called "Like a Virgin." And so uh, Ted sat with her and basically conveyed the, the the message from the record company. And she said, "What do you think I should do?" And he goes, "I don't know. I think you know you should make your own decision. I'm just here to pass the message along, sort of rather than sort of yeah trying to like tell her what to do." And I think I think Ted's perspective was that. You know, you're the artist, you know, in your gut, what you think is going to work, basically stand up for yourself, assert what you think, rather than having listened to what I said. I'm just some guy conveying a message and you don't agree with what the message from the record company is. You should you should tell them.
0: She did what she thought. And of course, uh, you know, like a virgin was enormous.
1: <laughs> exactly <right. laughs> Yeah, you don't want to be the guy in any book to be like, yeah, I told Madonna not to release like a virgin and right. whatever the other single flopped or whatever. Yeah.
0: So, unfortunately, as we all know, like many in the music business, you know, Ted, as it changed, would find himself a victim of mergers and alliances that he wasn't a part of and he thought he was. And, you know, in an industry with vastly different priorities than when he entered, you know, in my opinion, gracefully, he bows out.
1: Yeah, it was it was a hard stuff to write about. You know, I think Ted was really pained. I think that's the right word pained by the end of his career and not because of money or because of power. When I really talked to him about it at great length, I mean, for him, what the worst part about it was that when Ted got let go by by Warner Brothers in 1998, Ted had been with the company since 1970. He had been involved with being in bands or making music, going back to when he was a little kid, but, you know, kind of since the early 60s, where he was in... Uh, the Tikis. And so his whole life had revolved around being a performer or being a producer or being an executive at a record company. And so one of the things that ended up happening was that the deal that Warner Brothers offered him when they let him go was okay, we're going to pay you $5 million for five years not to work, a non compete clause, basically to make sure that Ted couldn't run over and go work for Capital or go work for obviously Ted could have gotten a job at another company the next day. Ted did take the money because it was sort of a kind of a no-brainer. If you're getting fired, you might as well get paid and give yourself some, you know, basically a kind of a cushion towards quote-unquote retirement. As he talked about, it, it was something that was almost, you know, fatal for him because he, he, the depression that came on for him was so profound and so dark. You know, he couldn't consult. He's not compete with such that, you know, if someone came to him and said, I have this young singer, I really think she's talented, Would you hear, her? in theory, Ted couldn't do anything towards working with her as a producer or get her a record, you know, any of those things. That was all banned. And so Ted was basically shut out from that part of his creative life. There was just an insane amount of turnover at Warner Brothers. And, you know, at this point, Ted's not interested in sort of pointing the finger at any one person or persons and saying, well, that's the reason why this happened. It was just an unfortunate series of years for him because it was so devoid of the creative part and the music part that he loved so much. And that's what he had all he had done since he was a little kid.
0: Well... Greg Renoff your book on Ted Templeman a platinum producer's life and music does Ted very well as well as it does for his pretty incredible body of work I think anybody who reads this book they'll know a lot of the music that Ted was involved with and perhaps they didn't know his role in it so um, great job as always it's a worthy follow-up to Van Halen Rising and thank you very much for joining us
1: I hey, appreciate it It was a great conversation I love going so in depth with you and thanks to you
0: if you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time and thanks again for tuning into Deep Dive and All Music Books podcast.